Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 56 being recorded on Thursday, October 27th. 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason. Welcome back from Las Vegas. Hope you had a good trip. I did. I have wagered my entire fortune on the Chicago Cubs to win the World Series, so hopefully you'll all be pulling for me. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we'll have to see how it goes. It's, uh, uh, at the time of this recording, it is a 1-1 series, so you never know how it's going to turn out. Exactly. And as you may recall, I live less than half a mile from the stadium, and so the, the next three games are coming here. So I'm expecting my, my neighborhood to be a little bit of a madhouse this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. That should be, should be, should be interesting. Lock the doors. Exactly. <laughs> Well, Jason and Scott fans, we have a big treat for you today. Some of our most popular shows have been interviews with brands like Mondelez, Abercrombie & Fitch, Under Armour, and VF Corp. And keeping in that theme, we're excited to add another marquee brand to the Jason and Scott interview list, Steve Madden. Steve Madden is one of the most iconic brands in footwear. Steve Madden has over $1.4 billion in annual sales, of which 80% is wholesale, and the rest is direct-to-consumer, which is made up of retail, factory outlet, and online. Steve Madden sells actively in 80 countries, and the wholesale retailers include Nordstrom's, Macy's, Lord & Taylor, and Dillard's, and they have 171 of their own stores here in the U.S. Joining us from Steve Madden is Mark Freeman, the president of e-commerce. Welcome, Mark. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Our pleasure. Uh, where are we talking to you from today, Mark? Well, I'm at uh, at home in New Jersey. Uh, Steve Madden's based in uh, Long Island City, Queens. So uh, well, we, you know, we, we're here, and uh, uh, I guess I'm not rooting for the Cubs or the, the Indians. I'm a Met fan. <laughs> that is, I mean, good. totally fair. <laughs> Does that mean you spend a lot of time on the LIE? Uh, I spend a lot of time on a lot of roads, not the LIE, but okay. uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of road time. Well, Mark, uh, one of the things we always like to do with new guests is uh, get a little flavor for your background and how you came into your role. So, uh, could you tell the our listeners a little bit about uh, your your background in e-commerce? Yeah, sure. Um, I kind of came at it from a a little bit of a different perspective. I started in my career in finance, worked for one of the uh, accounting firms when I got out of school, um, spent a couple of years in in finance and in auditing, ultimately moved into a uh, a startup uh, catalog business uh, a number of years ago, uh, way before the internet became even in existence, um, was started in uh, in finance in that business and then migrated over to uh, marketing and, and really never looked back, um, came up through the marketing channel. Um, and then my first break on the Internet really was um, probably in, in around 2000 when I went to work for Brooks Brothers, where I ran. Uh, I was general manager of the direct uh, to consumer business and then ultimately chief marketing officer of the entire company. Um, and we had a, a web business uh, there. And, and pretty much for the last you know, 15 or 16 years, it's been you know, predominantly focused on, on the web. Very cool. And when you first started in those marketing roles, did you have to hide your finance background from your coworkers? Well, no. As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> it, it was front and center because they wanted to know why a marketing guy knew so much about break-even analysis and return on investment and, and all. And, and it's funny because even to this day, um, I find that I, I spend quite m- more time doing the financial stuff than um, I ever expected I would be doing at this stage of my career. Gotcha. And can you tell us a little bit, like, so what is the scope of the role at Steve Madden? Is it predominantly direct sales? Are you also involved in how your e-commerce experience manifests uh, itself for all your wholesale partners? Yeah, so um, uh, my role is is specifically on the direct-to-consumer side, um, so not uh, involved in e-commerce um, on the on the wholesale side, so full P&L responsibility for Steve Madden US, uh, Steve Madden Canada, 
Betsy Johnson. Uh, we own, we have a license um, in North America for Superga, which is a sneaker uh, brand. And then I'm involved in, in some of our international uh, partnerships and distributorships for the online business. And then about 18 months, we bought a business called Dolce Vita, uh, which is predominantly a wholesale uh, shoe and, and more of a lifestyle brand now as it evolves. Um, and I help to manage the, uh, the their web business as well. Very cool. So that's a that's a pretty broad spectrum. How how many you mentioned Betty Johnson, um, Betsy obviously, Betsy Johnson. Sorry, Betsy. And then you obviously have Steve Madden. How, how many brands are in kind of the family at this point? Um, you know what? Um, from an e-commerce perspective, I just you know I mentioned all the ones that that are e-commerce enabled. Um, okay. You know, we've got a number of other brands. You know, some that are private label. Um, and and that are specific for the wholesalers that we sell. I don't even know how many total brands we've got at this point. Got it. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't ask you the infamous Amazon question. Um, and for brands, it's kind of multifaceted. So, um, you know, so you know, the wholesale, um, we call that kind of one P do you engage in wholesale with Amazon? Um, and then how do you think about third party? And sometimes we have brands that, that participate at that level too. And other times there's interesting philosophies around third party. So we'd love to hear, you know, your theology around Amazon. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a one P relationship, um, with, uh, with Amazon has been for quite some time. Um, and then, you know, about, uh, sometime in, in 2016, uh, we started working with them in a 3P model. Um, and, you know, as, as you likely know, and, and I know you're king of Amazon, um, they have a number of different models for filming by Amazon. And then, you know, now they've kind of morphed into this hybrid uh, type of a, of a scenario where they, they take the order and uh, the retailer actually does the shipping, um, and that's the kind of model that we're working with them now. In addition to the one P, very cool. And um, then, do you guys allow any of your retail partners to sell on Amazon, or is uh, how does that work? Um, good question. Uh, for the most part, um, I, I don't believe any of our retail partners. Um, are selling uh, via Amazon our products. Um, you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there, but you know, for the most part, we're doing the the direct selling uh, on Amazon, and it's you know, it's it's kind of an edited uh, assortment of product. Um, Amazon doesn't want you to be selling um, in the in the three P model the uh, the same products that you're selling that they're selling you know in the one P model. Um, so you know, it's kind of a, a live and learn. You know, you come to find that, um, you know, I, I know we had this or I certainly had it from a personal perspective. You know, it's Amazon. They're big. They're, you know, they, they should know how to get this done. It should be turnkey. Um, you know, it certainly was not turnkey and, and certainly <laughs> took a while to uh, to get it going and, and get it going right. And, and oftentimes it feels like they're learning at the same time we're learning. Yeah, we've often found it's the one area where different parts of Amazon don't talk to each other. It's kind of interesting. Like the wholesale team doesn't really know anything that the marketplace is doing. It's very, very unusual for an Amazon thing to be disconnected like that. Yeah, and even from a technology perspective of, you know, the, you know, they've got obviously a big business in the marketplace, but there's so many capabilities or, you know, pieces of the, the process that are really not well oiled and, um, you know, just functionally don't work as well as they should. Yeah. And then um, so it, it would seem like the 3P would fall under your purview because it's kind of direct to consumer. Um, do you do you, quote unquote, own the 1P as well? Or is that more of like a wholesale team at, at Steve Madden that runs that? Yeah, in actuality, I, I don't um, run even the 3P. So 1P is definitely um, our, our our wholesale team. Uh, the 3P is also run by by those guys as well. Um, that one is a little bit hybrid um, because I have, you know, oversight for, um, you know, we, we ship from uh, stores as well as from uh, the various distribution centers. Um, and although I don't run the stores, I have some oversight in the algorithms that we use to determine where product is going to be shipped from. Um, so although I'm not directly responsible for what's going into the 3P business, um, you know, I am uh, on the peripheral involved in it. So um, that's pretty interesting. So your um, so your three P Amazon sales, you're able to ship those from a store and a and a fulfillment center. Yeah, wow, that's pretty uh, 
Uh, Jason loves to talk omni-channel, so I won't jump in on that. But that that's pretty interesting. I, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone else that's kind of tuned their um, ship from a store to be able to actually kind of do that at that level. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think Amazon has said the same thing. But um, you know, basically, if you look at it from a, a technical perspective or tactical perspective, we're basically ingesting the orders from Amazon, the three P Amazon, much like any other internet order that we take on any of our sites, well, on the Madden site, um, and then it just rides the rails of of our e commerce platform, and we we ship it out like any other order. Got it. Uh, obviously, there's some significant advantages to having that unified inventory and, and being able to offer it to all those channels. I assume the disadvantage, though, is you're probably not taking advantage of fulfillment by Amazon for your 3P sales. Correct. Yep. That, that's correct. Um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when, when I, I've been at Madden five and a half years and um, they were doing uh, shipping from stores before I got there. Uh, they were, the company is fairly progressive in that way. Um, and it's, and it's interesting because when you talk to retailers that don't ship from stores, you know, everybody wishes that they can. And then when you do ship from stores, you understand why it took so much, so long for so many retailers to get there, because it's not as easy, um, as it might sound. It's, it's fairly complicated. Um, uh, there's lots of, you know, nuances, there's lots of algorithms to making sure that you're optimizing, um, you know, the, minimizing the cost and and minimizing the time and transit of the package and, um, you know, and all that stuff. And then, you know, there's complexities when you sell shoes, you know, it's not like ready to wear. Um, you go to pick it and, and you know, the likelihood that it's going to be um, 100 percent in pristine condition um, is pretty, you know, pretty likely. You know, when you're in the shoe business and people are trying on shoes, um, you know, sometimes they get, you know, slightly worn. Um, and, you know, our goal is, is not to ship anything to an Internet customer that's that's not pristine. Yeah, it, it's it's ironic a little bit. The it's one variant of the grass is always greener. Uh, yep. Of course, if you if you grow up in a business where you have a, a fulfillment center and you're shipping direct to consumer and, and you know, uh, you're you're looking at leverage uh, making the rest of your, your store inventory work harder. You think about, oh, my God, that's a a huge logistical challenge. And, you know, to your point, like, you know, many of those shoes in the stores might have been tried on. And so the the soles could be slightly scuffed. And um, and when customers order, you know, multiple pairs of shoes and they might not all be in stock in the same store, like there are all these logistical challenges that the warehouse shippers look at and go, man, that takes a lot of operational excellence to master. And I, I certainly think they're right to be concerned. The flip side is I have a lot of clients that literally couldn't justify opening a fulfillment center when when they first launched e-commerce. And so they shipped out of stores out of necessity because that was the only place their their inventory existed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're they're sitting there saying, man, the the logistics of, of opening and operating a, a centralized warehouse seem really daunting. And so it, it's you know, it's it's sort of funny that both both groups look at the other group and, and uh, think that they're ahead. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And you know, before I came to to Madden, you know, the businesses that I worked in, you know, worked uh, we we shipped from centralized warehouses. So the you know the concept of of having this this hybrid model shipping both from a warehouse and stores was uh, you know certainly an interesting challenge. And and it's one of those things that you just have to constantly evolve because every day there's there's new ideas and new ways to try and you know optimize the uh, the inventory that you've got. Yep. Uh, I do want to ask one more Amazon adjacent question. I'm imagining that Zappos is also a pretty important wholesale channel for you. That's correct. And so does does that feel like a like is there a different Zappos account team than Amazon account team? Like do they uh going back to the the silos within Amazon, do they get treated pretty separate or or are they starting to feel like one entity? Uh, well, from our side, um, you know, our wholesale team is is managing all of of these relationships. So the dot com, they're managing the dot com. So the Amazon, the Zappos, um, how it's managed on the other side, the retailer side, I'm not familiar with it. Got it. Because I, Scott, I don't know if you've run into this very much, but but one of the the curiosities to me is often Zappos looks like a three P seller on Amazon. Yeah, and um, so there's two ways Zappos will show up. They'll they um, they continue to use the product listing ad format. So it's like a it's like a Amazon product ads they used to call it. So um, it says available from an external site, and then other times it will look like a three P. 
So there's essentially like four ways your products can show up on Amazon 1P, Amazon 1P, Amazon 3P, Zappos 3P, and Zappos APA. <laughs> and it seems like the Amazon buyers kind of they want the product on Amazon, and they'll they they tend to kind of waterfall through 1P, 3P, Zappos 3P, and then external website, depending on the brand's policies of what they'll allow or not allow. Yep. And isn't that external website, like, that's an ad unit that's not available to most resellers now, right? Like, so is that a, a special status that Zappos uh, enjoys? It, it seems to be, yeah. And I've seen the um, uh, the diapers guys use it as well. Interesting. Um, well, I'd like to change topics to Omnichannel since Scott opened the door for me there a little bit. Uh, I'm presuming you're going to tell me that you're, uh, or I mean, you sort of already did, that you're also shipping uh, your your own direct e-commerce orders from your your own fulfillment center as well as stores. Correct. And you said you added the store fulfillment later. Uh, in talking to a lot of omni-channel retailers, they they really saw significant shipping advantages in adding the the fulfillment from store component because in theory, you could be shipping those those uh, SKUs from a, a, a store location that's much closer to the consumer. And so the shipping could be faster and cheaper and, um, and there can be a lot of good benefits. Did you guys see those benefits when you added the store fulfillment? Uh, the, the actual addition happened before I got there. Um, but, you know, just knowing what I know about the business, I, I think it's, you know, it's clear that, um, you know, our, our distribution centers, um, and, I, and I, when they launched in store, I don't know how many distribution centers we had, but you know our major one is in California um, today. Uh, although we have a few others, you know, strewn around the country, um, and we're you know moving inventory. We, we take inventory um, from um, uh, from international uh, manufacturers. Let's say some into California, and then we're distributing it out to stores. Um, some of the be- of the the items that we're buying, you know, deeper, uh, greater quantities, will hold back some in the warehouse and then push out to stores. And then, you know, if we get an order online and we still have it in the warehouse, we'll use that inventory. You know, it just doesn't make any sense to you know take from a store and then do the replenishment from the warehouse to the store. Um, you know, we've done the economics, and you know, in fact. Um, it, and uh, this was a surprise to me, but when you do the economics, if I've got a customer in New York and I have a product in New York, it could actually make it, um, it could actually be cheaper for, based upon the way our rates structure is with uh, UPS to just pull it out of the warehouse in California and ship it to the customer in New York rather than taking it from the New York store. Um, and sending it to the to the customer, um, and you know when you factor in touches, you know in the warehouse and the labor cost of you know picking and packing and putting it away, um, it's not quite as um, uh, this this the the extra expense is not nearly as much as you might think it would be. Interesting. And is is one of the costs you're including in that math the replenishment cost to the store? Is that yeah yeah yeah? yeah so then that exactly makes, that makes perfect sense in. Maybe uh, go back and tell us a little bit about the Steve Madden inventory. Um, I think of you guys as um, being sort of uh, fashion centric. And so I'm assuming that your SKUs change quite a bit. They do. Yeah. Um, and so is it like, are, are there a set of SKUs that you always maintain in the store? So, you know, you'd have to replenish, but, but presumably there are other stores uh, SKUs that like you might know are end of life. And then if you could ship that from a store, there might not be an incentive to replenish it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, I think the best way to say this, I think, is we've got different, all kinds of different animals or products. So you've got, you know, end of life clearance stuff that for the most part is all out into the stores. So there's no opportunity to ship it from a warehouse. Um, and then you've got, you know, let's call it, you know, the staples, um, even though we're a fast fashion, if you will, in the shoe space, um, you know, we do have legacy items, classic items, bestsellers, call them what you want, um, that we've always got in the warehouse um, across all colors and sizes. And if we can ship from there, we will. Um, and then you've got kind of the middle of the road stuff, you know, the, the things that are coming in seasonally could be colors. You know, if you're in sandal season, obviously it's it's the sandals. Now we're in, in boots and booty season. Um, 
So, you know, there's just lots of different um, uh, types of product. But, you know, what we try to do as a priority is ship from the warehouse where we can. We know those goods are pristine. We don't have to worry about, you know, taking people off the floor and going to pick it. Um, and, you know, look, one of the benefits of, you know, of a warehouse is you've got people there who do that all day long. They know where their inventory is. It's, it's um, you know, it's relatively organized. You know, you go into a store environment, you've got people who ultimately are there to sell and service a customer. Um, some of our stores certainly have stock people that, you know, are, are specifically there to ship product. But, um, you know, if we can push as much stuff out of the warehouse as we can, if we have it, that's what we do. Got it. One of the things I'm always interested about in uh, brands like yourselves that have sort of all the distribution models is, you know, you really get on those product detail pages when you've piqued a, a shopper's interest and, and uh, she she wants to buy a product. The the really three different call to actions that you could imagine are uh, you'd be interested in and that each somewhat compete with each other. Right. So. So, you know, I could add that to my cart and uh, you could ship it to to me directly. Uh, I could find out that it's available in a Steve Madden store near me, um, or I could be redirected to one of your wholesale partners that might have that product near them. And so I know a lot of brands always struggle with, you know, do we uh, offer all three of those calls to action on the product detail page? And do we, you know, give them all equal weight or do, you know, is, is there one that's very clear, happy path? Is, is that something that you guys debate or do you have a POV over what the sort of right approach is there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Um, so as we stand today, what we offer is, you know, obviously you can add to your card and, and buy it from me. Um, we give you the opportunity to see where we have it in a store. Um, and you can go to the store and, um, and, and obviously buy it there. Uh, we will offer at some point in in the future here order online um, and order online reserve online pick up and store. Um, the third scenario that you laid out, where we'd give the customer the opportunity to uh, get the item in a non Steve Madden store, so like one of the retailers, that's not something that we've contemplated. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and it, it's funny if I if I made a list of. Uh, brands that sell through all the channels you sell through, there would be no consistency. If we went to all their websites, you you could go to Nike, for example, and you'd see uh, that they very prominently promote that that wholesale um, partner on the product detail pages, and it has almost equal weight with with finding it in a Nike town. But you you know you could go to a, a North Face store, and you know uh, much more like you, you're going to find that that the direct sales channel have have a lot more. Uh, visual prominence than the wholesale channel. So it's, it's it's just always interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and if I take my Madden hat off for a second and I just speak as Mark Friedman, um, you know, I, I think that that scenario of, you know, if you, if you really take the customer centric view, you know, what are we really trying to do? We're trying to get a brand, call it XYZ brand into the hands of many, as many people as you possibly can. And, you know, maybe we should be agnostic about whether or not we, you know, sell it on from our site or we sell it from our store or we sell it from a retailer store. At the end of the day, we'd rather them buy XYZ brand than somebody else's brand. Got it. Kind of along those quest that uh, path and, and it's fine to take off your Steve Madden hat. Um, the, a lot of the brands we talk to are, are way earlier in their journey of, of thinking about going direct. So they're, they're primarily selling wholesale and, and um, a lot of the brands I talk to are, are are very nervous about the world today because you have the ascendancy of Amazon, you have all this negative uh, uh, news out there about malls and all these kinds of things. Um, so, how do you think about channel conflict? And and let let's say you were advising one of these companies, just kind of more at a personal level. I, I don't want to dig into anything exclusive to Steve Madden. How, how do you help people think about that? And and you know, in, any advice on that? Yeah, I think it's you know it's similar to what I, I say before is that we should be you know and I've said this at uh, you know some of the the conferences that I've spoken you know at is I, I think we want to give the customer you know what they want when they want it um, and make it as easy for them to to purchase it and you know I, I think that most customers I, I think most customers 
don't really care if, if they see a shoe, if they see a, um, you know, a shoe or any product for that matter, and they have confidence that they can get it from the brand's site, they're happy to do it. If they feel like they can buy it at a retailer site, they're happy to do it. Um, if they, you know, um, if they can go into a store, I think they're happy to do it. You know, I think one of the challenges that, you know, we all have today is, especially when you are a retailer, um, that's also, that's, that's a wholesaler and going direct to consumer is, you know, what do you do to differentiate one channel from the next? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think Madden has done a great job over the years um, at differentiating product. Um, you know, uh, if you look at the, the different retailers that we're selling to, you're selling at Nordstrom and, and at Bloomingdale's and at Macy's, you're selling at DSW and Famous Footwear. So we've got the full gamut of, of shoe retailers covered. And then you've got the online guys covered. Um, you've got all price points, you know, covered. Um, so I think at the end of the day, the council is, you know, give the customer what they want when they want it and, and don't make it, you know, overly complicated. Um, and, you know, the problem is now is the technology is, is such that, um, you know, people, you know, the, the, the patience level of, of people is <laughs> everybody wants it yesterday. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's a, a real challenge because, you know, getting it to customers more quickly is obviously, you know, a bit more costly. But if we can direct them to a store, whether it's, you know, ours or somebody else's, maybe in the end of the day, that's the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, so the brands I talk to, they live in fear. They'll say, like, let's pretend Walmart's a big channel partner of theirs. And they'll say, well, if I start selling direct on my website, Walmart's going to be pretty upset. How do you how do you counsel these brands to kind of you know talk to their their wholesale partners about about why it's okay for them to be going direct? It's it's tough. I mean, I, I know we struggle you know with it. You know, the retailers that we work with, you know, have have because we've been doing it for so long. Um, you know, there's no com- there's no conversation really about should you go direct or shouldn't you go direct. The, the real conversations are more about the pricing that you bring, you know, you're going to market with on products that are either the same or comparable to what, you know, they've already bought from you. So you always have that, that price, um, uh, price issue. Um, but I, I think, you know, frankly, if, if it's a retailer who's worried about, you know, that's a wholesaler and now wants to go direct, one of the ways to, to do it and, and talk to that retailer is to differentiate your product. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, it, it, you can st- obviously still be in the same category, but you know, it could be, um, uh, different embellishments on a product. It could be, um, different fabrications on the product, just something that differentiates it enough from what you're selling into the, the wholesale channel. Got it. I'd love to uh, hear your thoughts a little bit about mobile. Um, I know you guys have an app. I know your your site is optimized for for mobile viewers. Like, do you? You know, we're talking to lots of of folks that are seeing the majority of their traffic shift to mobile, and just just curious how how you guys think about the mobile channel. Yeah, um, mobile first. You know, is the the mantra. Um, we got a long way to go to to get there. I, I think or I know. Um, you know, I, I think we're in the same, yeah, our customer is, you know, is the, the proverbial millennial, you know, customer, you know, one of the things, but interesting about our business is we do, um, you know, we certainly skew on the younger side, but we've got, you know, plenty of, uh, customers that are, are a bit older. Um, but we shift our shift to mobile. I've been there, like I said, five and a half years and our shift to mobile has been pretty aggressive. Um, so what we've been trying to, uh, to do is, you know, is as we design, you know, homepages is, uh, for a long time we were doing, you know, the desktop because it's easier to see, there's more space, it's easier for the graphics guys to, to do it. Um, and we've now tried to, to think about designing with the mobile homepage is going to look like, um, we've spent a lot of time, uh, working on, um, uh, of page performance and load times and, and time to first bite. Uh, we've, we've done a bunch of using a bunch of third party analytical tools, uh, look at, you know, what the real dollar value is of, 
of speeding up some of these pages and there's real money to be had. Um, and, um, last holiday we went right before last holiday, we went through a project and, um, sped up mobile. And, and I think it, the ROI on that was, was really good. Uh, we did another iteration, you know, this year and, and I'm hoping that we're going to get a good return on that investment. So, um, you know, some of it is creative and execution, um, and, and making it easier for the customer to navigate, uh, the mobile site. You know, we've got all the products on mobile that we do on, on desktop, um, we've got some functionality in in mobile that uh, or some uh, functionality on desktop that we don't have in in mobile, but now we have in mobile web. Like you know, we have a blog um, that is available on the desktop, but wasn't av- available in mobile web, but now is in the app. So um, the app launched, um, I guess, in in April of this year. Uh, we did that app because uh, we're working on a loyalty program that will. Uh, live uh, in in a number of places, but uh, certainly it'll be part and parcel to what we're doing in the app. Got it. And uh, just because it's it's on the forefront of my mind, I just got back from a payment show. Uh, in the mobile app, are you guys using like Apple Pay or any of the the mobile wallets that are available to apps? Yeah, you know, no. The, the answer is no. Um, you know, we we've contemplated Apple Pay. Um, but, you know, it'd be interesting to hear what your thought is, because um, we'd have some work to do on the integration in the app. And then we have some back end work uh, in order to make our systems talk to the app. And, you know, based upon what I'm seeing and the penetration rate and usage and and even people, my perception, not really talking about Apple Pay the way I thought they would be by now, uh, we've just decided to defer it. Yeah, it I, like I don't think there is a clear cut answer. Um, I think it, there's a fair amount of evidence that for a engaged user of one of those wallets, via Apple Pay or PayPal One Touch or Android Pay or whatever the case is, if if one of your users is an engaged user and they've onboarded their credit cards and that's their preferred way to pay. Uh, their checkout experience using that service is much lower friction than your your traditional uh, checkout. And so I think uh, we were talking to some of the representatives at Stripe and Stripe offers Apple Pay or, you know, non-Apple Pay checkout. And they were saying that across their customer base, the the customers that choose to use Apple Pay have two and a half times better conversion. So that's that's hugely meaningful. But to your point, what kind of reach does Apple Pay have? Like, how, you know, what, what percentage of my user base are actually going to use Apple Pay to get that higher conversion rate? And is that worth all the effort? And is it worth all the complication of ask, of offering multiple payment types in your checkout. So I, I think you really have to look at your customer base and, and you know, what, what level of engagement they have with those mobile wallets. But one of the interesting approaches I've seen recently, and I even think um, there's a big marketplace that I know Scott and I have mixed feelings about out there uh, called Wish. Um, and uh, one of the things I noticed about their experience is if you're an Apple Pay user and you have a credit card onboarded into your Apple Pay account, when you try to uh, check out, Apple Pay is the only payment method that they offer. Really? Um, but if you're not an Apple Pay user or you don't have a credit card in your Apple Pay account, you don't see the Apple Pay option and you get the the traditional credit card checkout. And I I think that is pretty clever. Like I've I really like the idea of only showing the PayPal button if I see a cookie on the browser that they're a PayPal user. And, and certainly I like that idea even more so for the the more niche wallets like the MasterPass or, or a Visa Checkout or those things. And at the moment, none of those vendors want to do that because they all want a big billboard on your website. Yeah, you know, we, we adopted PayPal um, probably three years ago. And, you know, we went from, you know, zero to, you know, decent adoption almost overnight. And, and then, you know, it's slowly, you know, picked up, it's a higher penetration on mobile. Um, it's an okay experience, but, um, you know, we, we survey customers a lot and ask them, you know, what are we missing? What can we do better? And nobody talks about Apple pay. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I think using the voice of the customer to drive your priorities makes the most sense. I agree. Uh, so I certainly wouldn't, would never argue with that. Uh, Another practice that I know, again, I don't think there's a correct answer here, but I, I did notice your approach uh, 
you guys have an interstitial for the mobile app on your mobile website. So if I go to your mobile website, the there's going to be a banner at the top of that website saying, hey, have you checked out our app? And is that like, was that controversy at all? Controversial at all? Like, are you seeing, you know, good engagement with that, that banner and people are going there? Or? Yeah. Um, no, it, it wasn't controversial. Um, I guess you, you're controversial in the sense that would it inhibit um, conversion and engagement on the mobile? Well, yeah. So, uh, so traditionally, and again, everyone's different. Some of the challenges, uh, so the apps tend to have much higher value per customer, but much lower reach, right? Like, and there are all these, yep. these scary stats about, you know, people only have uh, use five apps on their phone and 80% of their time is in, in these five apps. And none of those five apps are a, a retailer or a brand's app. Um, and so the, the problem with apps tends to be reach. And uh, so, so imagine you have someone that's not very gauged app, an engaged app user and they, they, they're standing in a store and they're looking in a shoe and they don't have the size in stock that they want. So they, they pop open their mobile device and they look up that shoe. They have huge buying intent um, and bam, like instead of, you know, making it as frictionless as possible to get them to that shoe, um, you're promoting them to download the app, which means, you know, has, has some friction, right? Like when that customer clicks on that ad and they go to the Apple store, that may be when they realize that they don't know their Apple ID or their Apple password. Um, and even if they do know it, they're going to download the app, which takes some time and then they're going to launch the app. And of course, when they launch that app, they're not going to land on the, on the product detail page that they started on that, you know, was the shoe they were interested in. So you potentially lose the purchase scent from, from that customer. But the flip side is, if a bunch of those customers become loyal app users and have much higher value, then that's a, a, a totally fair trade-off. Yeah, and you know, I, I would say that we took the approach where we gave the customer a bit more credit than um, I don't. I have nothing to support this other than you know <laughs> talking to some customers, but um, giving them a bit more credit that at this juncture, especially you know a fairly savvy customer group knowing that that's a pop-up and that if they don't want the app, they just have to X out of that and they can continue their experience, you know, on mobile web. Um, you know, we, we closely monitor conversion, um, you know, daily. And, you know, I would say that, you know, since we started, you know, doing that and it's been many months already, um, you know, we've, we've clearly generated downloads and it's not impacted, uh, you know, it hasn't been a higher bounce rate, you know, off the homepage, uh, we haven't reduced conversion on mobile. Um, and, you know, j- just as an aside, you know, on, on mobile app, um, you know, very candidly, and I, and I have said this publicly, um, I don't think we would be doing a mobile app or I wouldn't have, you know, pushed to do a mobile app unless we were doing the loyalty program. If if we were just going to be doing, um, you know, do a mobile app and give now a mobile customer a different kind of experience and not add some kind of feature or function and a reason for being for the app, in this case, loyalty, I would never have done it. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with your philosophy there. Like, it, you know, I think you need some some high engagement features on that mobile app that are differentiated from the web to really justify it. And loyalty is, is one of the best ones. So um, that certainly makes sense. Out of curiosity, do you does your group own the mobile app development and and roadmap? Is that is that part of your team, or is there a separate like brand team or innovation team that that own the mobile app and you collaborate with them? How does how does that work? That would be us. Nice. Um, we we do have a uh, we're structured a little bit you know differently. We have a um, a corporate VP of marketing. Um, she's responsible for all of the international and and retail store and. Uh, wholesale marketing, um, and we we work real well together. So um, you know, our team our team is also responsible for social. So you know that's a little bit of a departure. You know, lots of uh, digital organizations run social too, but you know, for us, uh, she manages that, and and our teams work very collaboratively. Um, it's it's one of the things that does work well. Cool. And um, since you brought up social, the uh, today, um, and you've had a, a you know a, a long career going back to catalog, and, and it seems like there's infinite choices on marketing channels today. So you've got all the social, you've got the traditional Google SEO, SEM, um, you know, 
lot, some people are still, we, we have them on the show and they still say catalog works really well. What, what's your point of view on all these different channels and um, any interesting observations for listeners of what may be working or not working for you guys? Uh, you know, I'm an old, uh, you know, catalog guy, but we don't do any mailing. Um, you know, we, we tried some stuff, you know, when I first got there because, you know, it's kind of, you know, a little bit of what I knew. I, I still think there's an opportunity to do some mailing. Um, but, you know, our customer has gotten, you know, is, is very, like I said, very heavily millennial. Um, I've got, you know, twins that are 23 years old and they don't even go near the mailbox, let alone, you know, looking at mail, even if it's addressed to them and it's important. Um, so I'm not sure that uh, marketing in the mail uh, for our guys is is going to be you know a good thing. Um, you know, social is is kind of a combination of branding and as well as um, you know uh, performance marketing. Um, you know, Facebook uh, from a retargeting perspective does well. We do some some targeting um, uh, in audience uh, building in Facebook that you know that does okay. Um, you know, Instagram, we've not done any significant advertising you know, with them, but uh, we use a lot of uh, user generated content on the site. We work with Olapic. Uh, we were you know, probably one of the first 10 or 20 uh, clients of, of Olapic. And um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that uh, that content, um, you know, continues to perform well and, and have a high level of engagement. Um, so, and then, you know, we do all the other basic blocking and tackling, you know, uh, pretty extensive email marketing program, um, all the paid search, you know, we, um, you know, we, we, we try to be better and improve what we're doing from a natural perspective, but I think that's a constant battle and, uh, let's see what else we do and, and retargeting, you know, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how about Snapchat? If you mentioned a millennial audience and they seem to be kind of favoring that channel. Have you guys ever experimented with that? Yeah, the, uh, the social team has, uh, they've been doing a bunch of stuff with, uh, with Snapchat. I don't think that we've necessarily licked how to monetize it. Um, but certainly from a branding perspective and, you know, uh, you know, Steve himself is still very actively involved in the business and does a lot of personal appearances, uh, predominantly f- to support the wholesale, uh, you know, the retailers. And um, they've been uh, the social team has been leveraging um, him in Snapchat and as well as Instagram and, and some other things. Yeah. And you mentioned you guys have a, a largely millennial kind of audience. Any other observations uh, about that, that audience you can share? Um, you know, back to what I said before, you know, their patience level is, is really low. Um, you know, they, they want it now. Um, but you know, it, it is interesting that I say they want it now, but you know, one of the things that, um, uh, you know, we happen to do, you know, we have a big, relatively big pre-order business. So we put products up on the site. We don't have the inventory yet. Um, you know, we give them a, a ship date, you know, it's just an old, old term, a new term for, for a back order. Um, but, um, y- you know, because we are a fashion business, um, the tried and true customer comes to the site. They know if they see something that's, you know, new and different and, and trendy, uh, they want to get it, they want to reserve it. And, um, you know, so despite the fact they want it now, they're willing to wait if it's something that's really meaningful to them. Yeah, and I'm, I'm assuming you found that millennial audience is is heavily mobile compared to the the other other sets. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, we're we're north of, uh, you know, we're low sixties, you know, uh, now pretty consistently on on smartphone uh, traffic, and you know the percentage, you know, uh, I, I think over time here we're seeing that conversion rate, you know, continues to increase. But you know, look, I think that part of what we all struggle with, the industry struggles with, is that you've got a um, a device, a channel whose conversion rate is lower than desktop, and you're moving traffic to that channel. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't do something differently, um, you know, you you could be eroding your business. And um, which is why, you know, we've spent a lot of time, you know, I I think that it's for marketers, you know, one of the things you want to do is try and drive more traffic to your stores, more traffic to your to your phones, more traffic to your, you know, to your website. Um, And sometimes we lose track of the or lose focus of the fact that once you get these people there, you got to try and close the deal. 
So we've, you know, over the last year or two, really, you know, um, rededicated ourselves to conversion. And yes, we're going to keep trying to drive more traffic, um, but getting more traffic is more competitive, especially as more people sell our product. So once we get traffic there, we need to make sure we can close it. It sounds so easy to say. Yeah, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, you know, I, I've got a, a whiteboard, you know, in my office that, you know, I've got things up there, you know, probably I probably can't erase it anymore because it's been up there for so long. Uh, but it's these same mantras that, you know, it's mobile first, it's conversion, it's, you know, how do you drive more units per order? Um, and, and frankly, you know, it's it's no different than when I grew up in the catalog business. It's it's the same thing. It's how do I increase units per order? How do I increase average order? How do I get more people to ring the telephone now? It's just they've outsourced it to the customer. Yeah. Um, speaking of your catalog background, one of the things that I I, I was going to say suspect, but I I, I'm, uh, I know can be a challenge in in your particular category is returns. We don't take returns. Nice. Does that, are you serious? You really don't? No, no, no. I'm kidding. Yeah, that'd be. I mean, that would be the best solution. I I, I feel like. Uh, <laughs> Things Remembered has it figured out. Like, just engrave everybody's name on everything you sell them and then don't take it back. Yeah. Uh, but I know, like, in apparel and particularly footwear, like, returns are much higher than in some other categories. And so I imagine uh, that it's worth having some specific initiatives, like thinking specifically about your customer experience to try to reduce those returns. And I was just curious if you if you had any tricks that had worked. Are you, you know, are you using any of the, like, uh, true fit technologies or any of those things or no we we've not um, really spent any time um, you know uh, real real brain cell time evaluating you know those things you know although you know um, you know the the economics of reducing your return rate by one percentage point is really significant um, you know of of all the things that we've you know focused on you know, returns have been extraordinarily consistent year over year. Um, you know, I would say for the last five years, there's been almost, uh, you know, almost no change in the return rate, you know, either on units or in dollars. So, um, and, and if you, I know we benchmarked ourselves against, you know, other retailers, other shoe retailers, and, and we feel like we're in a relatively good place. You know, I, my experience, you know, on the catalog side, there's some floor under which you're never going to get, you know, whatever the number is, there's, you know, for your business, there's, you know, X percentage of returns that are just going to happen. Um, and, you know, not to say that we are at that floor, um, but, you um, I, I would say we haven't really worked perhaps as hard as we could um, in reducing them. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so we're going to go from a very tactical question to like a 30,000 foot kind of view. So, so you've, you've had this uh, career where you've seen kind of things go from catalog to desktop e-commerce to now mobile e-commerce. What, what do you think if, if you kind of look three to five years ahead, what, what do you see as kind of some of the next big trends in, in retailing and, and e-commerce? Well, if I was, if I knew the answer to that, I'd quit my job and go consult. Um, <laughs> I'll be writing down your answer, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I guess there's going to be, um, th there'll probably be a continued use of, of social to sell um, or an improvement in, in, you know, in the places where people spend the most time. You know, I, I, I think that you know, I'll give you a perfect example of what, what didn't work, you know, all that well and maybe won't answer your question. But, you know, Google came out with the Google Buy button, you know, last year, 18 months ago, whatever it was. And, mm -hmm. you know, they said it was going to be, you know, the next great big win. And, you know, they put us in a beta and, and it was exciting to be in it. And, you know, we spent all this time and effort and, um, you know, we got like one order. Um, and I'm, I'm being facetious, but, you know, the volume is is relatively, you know, uh, low. Um, but I, I think where where the eyeballs are, um, whether it be in a Facebook kind of a thing, um, I, I think there'll be a renewed effort to try and get people to shop in those environments. Um, I think that, you know, stores are going to need to um, I don't know. I don't know how. 
but stores are going to continue to need to evolve um, because the, just the traditional store concept is not going to work any any longer. I think we're seeing that now. Um, the, you know, just the the, the days of um, you know putting product on tables um, and hoping that people are going to come in and shop. Uh, I just don't think it's it's going to happen. I mean, you know, department stores. You know, this is not earth shattering news. You know, my kids never go to a, um, a department store. Um, well, my daughter, she'll shop anywhere, but, um, um, you know, my son won't go to a department store. He's going to do everything online. Maybe he goes to a specialty store. So we're going to need to, you know, to lick that challenge, but we also need to, you know, I, I think you're going to see, um, the, the capabilities that you can only get in, in a native app today as browsers become more sophisticated, you'll probably see more functionality, um, allowable in a browser, um, You'll be able to consume more um, uh, more files, more you know he- heavier uh, images, and the time to download will be you know quicker. Um, so you'll be able to give you know an improved experience just on a on a smartphone. And you know, look as we're seeing tablet traffic down, um, and most of that I think is because the size of the the, the smartphone is continuing to grow. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fashion guru, as Jason will tell you, but um, you know, as I was kind of prepping for the show and learning more about you guys, you're you're. It's always cited that you're really well known for your ability to react to trends very quickly. Um, and it, you know, I don't know if you call yourselves fast fashion or not, but it seems like that that would fit. Um, so you know, that makes me think, as a computer science guy, it makes me think, you know. Is there a day where you can do predictive analytics to help kind of understand where these fashions are growing? And then I'm 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 fascinated with 3D printing, and yep. I know that that you know some of the shoe guys are kind of messing around with that. Uh, do you think some of those things would would impact you guys? Yeah, you know I I know that um, I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of of what we've kicked around, but um, I've kicked around personally. Um, with some folks that are doing, you know, 3D printing just more as a hobby than than anything, um, and it's it's coming. Um, and the whole personalization um, using 3D printing, whether it's uh, you know embellishment on on shoes or embellishment on you know on bags or other kinds of things, I, I think that's that's imminent. Um, and um, uh, I, I don't know exactly when. Um, but I think you're totally going to be able to do something like that. Um, you know, I, I, we, I don't know that we necessarily classify ourselves as fast fashion, but, you know, Steve has done a great job over the years with his, you know, designers of being able to, you know, determine what the trends are, um, you know, do some tests, um, you know, like most retailers are doing today, you know, small tests, see how they work, and then be able to back it up and roll it out when you have a winner very quickly. And, you know, our supply chain is is relatively good. Um, you know, and, you know, I think if, if we had a place where we'd want to improve and we, we have improved a lot over the last few years is, you know, is in technology and, and analysis, um, you know, we're, we're a product company, um, we grew really quickly and, and oftentimes, you know, companies like that, um, are not as, um, state of the art from a technology perspective as you'd like to be. Um, but we're continuing, uh, you know, to, to make enhancements there. Well, Mark, it has happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time, uh, but we really want to thank you for taking time out of your evening to join us on the show. We certainly appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. It was really interesting. I think I learned a few things tonight, too. Yeah, thanks, Mark, and thanks, everyone, for joining us on The Jason and Scott Show. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.